Well, it uh, doesn't seem like it really matters what your field of expertise or industry or whatever it might be. Everyone today has an opinion about the goat, you know, the goat, the, the greatest of all time, whether it is the coach or the athlete, the politician, the inventor, the investor, the singer, the band, the artist, the warrior, the whatever, everyone has an opinion about who is the greatest of all time in this particular field and, and maybe closely associated with that, they all sort of want to debate about what makes them the greatest, whether it's their skill or their intelligence or their cunning or their work ethic or their creativity or influence or whatever it might be. Well, this morning we... Um, we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 18 and uh, in the midst of a, a group of disciples who are having that kind of a discussion. They are discussing with one another the greatest and, and particularly they're referring not to so much others, but they're thinking about themselves. Are they the greatest or, or will they be the greatest? This is This is what we find in the first couple of verses of Matthew chapter 18, a a discussion among the disciples about which one of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And the whole context creates an opportunity for Jesus to talk to them about this topic, to define for them and for us this idea of greatness, of true greatness, a definition which I'm sure shocked them to some extent, would shock many people. For most people, it would confront their expectations. It might even defy their whole belief system. But for those who have come to this place where they see the vanity of their own way, where they're starting to see some of the pitfalls that their own pride has brought into their life, for those who've come to see that greatness in the world is not all that it's cracked up to be, this This message from Christ provides tremendous wisdom. In fact, it provides a very pathway of salvation for them. Listen to what Jesus says in these first four verses of Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this brief little interchange touches on some of the most important truths that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. And since they are the important truths of Scripture, they're really some of the most important truths that you will hear any time in your life. It all revolves around this idea of greatness, which Jesus turns here to the idea of childlikeness, or we might even say the idea of humility. And in doing all that, he really upends all the perceptions of human greatness that are common to man, and he establishes what we might say is the true secret of greatness. It's a secret that uh, many, many people will miss, but when you understand it, it's within the grasp of every person. No matter what your background or your skill level or your intelligence or anything like that, this greatness that he outlines, the secret to this greatness is within your grasp, the grasp of every person. 
Because what he's telling us here is that true greatness is found in God alone. And so those who are truly great are the ones who have given up on greatness in themselves or greatness from themselves. And having completely humbled themselves before God, they're now in a place for God to pour out his greatness in and through them, to work in them to bring about great things. Now, you can kind of unpack all this truth by just taking note of the way that uh, humility, we might say, is highlighted or not highlighted in this passage. Three reminders of of, uh, humility in the passage. The first one, just simply the fact that ambition rejects humility. That's not where it comes from. That's what we, we note here in the opening verse when this whole conversation arises. It arises, a question comes, but it comes in the context of ambition. Now, you don't know that so clearly in Matthew's gospel. He just simply says that this all happened at that time, a sort of a general time frame. But when we compare Luke and Mark, we realize that that time that he's talking about is the journey back from the Mount of Transfiguration to the city of Capernaum. And on the road and on the way, uh, Luke tells us that an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Which of them was the most faithful? Which of them was the most influential? Which of them was the favored? And it may very well have risen out of jealousy because you may remember on the Sermon on the Mount, excuse me, the Mount of Transfiguration, you may remember that Jesus chose from among all 12 disciples just three of them. And three of them went up and they had this experience and they saw the glory and they saw the transfiguration of Christ and they came down and they may have been tempted to share what they know, what they saw. This is sort of, again, a common, kind of a common trait among people. When we know something, when we have inside knowledge, we want to share it with someone. You've all been sort of around that person and you're saying something and then uh, they got some uh, sort of inside angle and they just can't help themselves. They just have to blurt out what they know. Well, maybe that's what happened. These guys came down the mountain and, um, and there immediately was a spark of jealousy on the part of some and maybe a spark of pride on the part of those that were privileged to have seen what they saw. And so this goes on. They, they begin to have this argument among themselves as they're walking back from the Mount of Transfiguration, back down probably uh, a full day's journey to Capernaum. And when they finally get to the city, Mark tells us when they get to the city, Jesus turns and asks them, what were you discussing on the way? To which they were, uh, Mark says, initially just quiet. They were, I'm sure, somewhat embarrassed by their sort of childishness. They were embarrassed by what their hearts were revealing. But eventually the shame gives way to reality and they just present the question straight to Jesus. They just put it to him. Who is the greatest? Who's who's the greatest in the kingdom? You just resolved this for us. You're the one that chose three of us to go up the mountain. You're the one that left the rest of us behind. You're the one that's been with us. You go ahead, lay the cards on the table. Which one of us is the greatest? Now, this is uh, particularly poignant in in light of the fact that Jesus 
had gone up the mountain and met with uh, Moses and Elijah and were told that they were discussing his departure, meaning his, his crucifixion and his death. And shortly before that, Jesus had been telling them that he was going to Jerusalem to be, to be rejected by the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, to suffer at their hands, to be killed and crucified. You might expect that as they're on their way back then from their little retreat up in Caesarea Philippi, you might expect that their hearts were overcome with grief and heaviness over what they were hearing, or you might expect that they would be discussing among themselves what kinds of things they could do to bring comfort to the heart of their master in the midst of all this. But instead of all that, they were consumed with a debate about their personal standing, filled with questions, not about how they could be helpful to him, but filled with questions about how they were going to outshine each other, how they were going to get ahead, how their association with Christ is going to personally benefit them. That's not surprising, I suppose, when you just kind of think about the world that uh, we live in, the world that they lived in was uh, in some ways not all that different. This was maybe perhaps natural. This seemed like a reasonable discussion for them. They, they lived in the context like we do of unbridled pursuit of self-focus and self-interest, not just from their political uh, leaders, their civic leaders, governmental leaders. That might, I suppose, be somewhat expected. But even in the religious community, you may remember Jesus says that that the scribes and the Pharisees loved the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. So even, even their most respected religious and moral leaders modeled this in front of them, jockeying and trying to position themselves in the most glorious light. Everyone around them, all of their, their greatest examples were examples of self-seeking and self-service and self-fulfillment and self-focus and in some cases outright arrogance. Like our own society that it just, it just permeates everything that we do. This, this sort of uh, being consumed with your own uh, uh, glory and your own advancement, this hubris that is celebrated all around us, lack of concern for others and a undue focus on self. And the assumption in all of it is that uh, fulfillment is ultimately found by serving yourself, by getting ahead, by crushing others around you if necessary, demanding everything for yourself. That's the message that we get. That's the message that surrounds us, and it would have been the message that surrounds them all the time. And, and it would be really hard for them to break away from it. Like I said, even in religious circles, that was what they saw. Even in our own world, I mean, we see that. Like, uh, like John in the first century who confronted a man in the church named Diotrephes who he says loves to be first among them. There are people even in your 
most sacred circles who are like that. They model self-centeredness. They model self-seeking. That's really hardly distinguishable from the unbelieving world. And, And so all around us and all around these apostles... This is just the way you live. And, and, and so this might have been, for their minds, natural, acceptable, permissible to just think of themselves and, and to debate among themselves and to talk so freely about which one of them was the most influential, which one of them was the greatest. And by the way, this isn't the end of it. Even after Jesus gives them what seems to be a pretty clear response to this, it'll go on and on and on. Later on in Matthew chapter 20, I mean, two of uh, Jesus' disciples that were told that their mother will come to Jesus and just tell them, just ask him uh, point blank, Lord, when you get into your kingdom, will you ordain that my sons will sit one on your right hand and one on your left? Just brazen, uh, brazen attempts for self-advancement. Luke tells us that even on Jesus's night of his crucifixion, when he had just instituted the Lord's table, even at that very moment, they were engaged once again in a debate about which of them was the greatest. So it wasn't going to go away easily. It's kind of woven into their mentality, much like it's woven into the the worldview around you. It's just the expectation that this is the way you think, this is the way you act, this is the way you live. Well, when Jesus gets to Capernaum, when he does press them on what they were saying on what was going on, and when they do present the question to him, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's going to have the most privileged spot? Jesus responds by calling to him a child and puts the child in the midst of them. The word is paidon. It's not an infant necessarily, not... Uh, uh, you know, a baby, but, but a very small child is the implication. Big enough, obviously, to hear, to respond, to come over to Jesus, but uh, not a preteen, not a teenager. This is a small child. And he becomes kind of an illustration on a couple points of humility for Christ, which really brings us, highlights for us, the second element of humility in this passage that Jesus brings forward, which is that salvation itself requires childlike humility. Salvation itself requires humility. That's his first message to them. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, like, like this little child he puts in front of them, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So before you even have the discussion about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, maybe you ought to stop and ask, who's even going to be in the kingdom of heaven? What are the entrance requirements? If you want to enter into heaven, if you want to enter into the kingdom, if you want to have salvation, Jesus says, you're going to have to become like a child. This is is going to require a transformation of your life. And as R.C., uh, J.C. Ryle, I should say, says, it's not a transformation of one from, from one set of opinions to another. It's not a transformation of one party to another or, or sort of one, uh, you know, sort of group of, 
of uh, uh, friends to another. It's not those sort of things which might happen from time to time in someone's life, but those aren't the kind of transformations that save anybody. The transformation that must take place in your life if you want to be saved, the transformation that must be evident in your life if you want to enter into heaven is a transformation from pride to humility. That's what he's saying. This is the only way for you to enter into heaven. This is the only kind of people who get into heaven. It's people who become like this child. You say, well, what, what exactly does he mean by that? Well, he means, you know, what this child is, is kind of a representation of what you're supposed to be. Not in every sense, because we know that there are elements of, of childishness that are not celebrated in Scripture. We certainly know the Scripture tells us that that children can be as selfish as anybody else. Anybody who has children or has been around children know that they can be very demanding. They can be in many ways inconsiderate. They can be, uh, they can be you know, self-centered, as self-centered as, as anybody. So Jesus isn't suggesting that you should be childish in that sense of not, just not being concerned with people around you. And he's, he's certainly not talking about your reasoning. He's not saying that you should be a simpleton in your reasoning, or even foolish, because we know that, that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, according to Scripture. He's not suggesting any of those kinds of things. He's not suggesting that you should have the kind of naivete or simple-mindedness, because the Scripture warns us against those kinds of, of uh, shallow and superficial ways of thinking. Proverbs 1, how long Oh, simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Jesus is no fan, and the Bible is no fan of people who hate knowledge. You know, those that want to sort of just uh, operate on the fringes of Christianity, but when you challenge them to want to read or study or learn or grow, they have no interest in those kinds of things. They just want to live a kind of a superficial a simpleton life. And the scripture says, why? How long will you do that? That's like a child. So this isn't what Jesus is talking about. He, this is not the kind of, of a shallow-minded or simplistic thinking that he wants you to embrace. Paul himself even warned the Corinthians, do not be children in your understanding. This is not a, a call to a lack of sophistication. No, when Jesus is talking about entering into heaven and the kind of transformation that has to take place, he, he primarily has two factors in mind when it comes to children. The first is that children have no pretense when it comes to their understanding. They have no pretense in regard to their own understanding. Children generally know that they don't know. And consequently, they ask questions. They ask lots and lots of questions, don't they? All the time. I mean, if you um, are not aware of that, just ask your wife who's home with them all the time. Question after question after question. This is the way they are because they recognize that their knowledge is limited and they also recognize that the people around them, the people that they trust, their parents, their grandparents, maybe their teachers, have a lot more knowledge than they do. 
And so this is sort of, this is sort of a exemplary of a child. They understand that they, they don't have understanding. Translate that into the spiritual realm. To become like a child is to recognize the extremely limited nature of your mind. It's to recognize that your mind and your heart have been weakened and corrupted by sin and are no longer trustworthy. Your mind, your heart is no longer trustworthy. And so the Scripture says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. This is the pathway to heaven. Or Jeremiah says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, declares the Lord. So this is the one aspect of childlikeness, as a, uh, childlikeness likeness that you must have if you're going to enter into heaven. You have to lay aside any claim to your own wisdom and your own understanding and your, and your own perspective. If you were to frame it in terms of perception, you just have to admit that you don't perceive things very well. That you don't see, as Jesus says to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But because you say, we see, then your guilt remains. So the person that hasn't become childlike, the person that you approach and you try to share with them the wisdom of God's Word, and they're like, I don't want to hear it. I know this. I know this. I know this. I know this. They're just filled with everything that, that they know and not willing really to renounce their own understanding. They're not ready for the kingdom, Jesus says. And so becoming like a child is to recognize that you don't know anything. And then becoming dependent on God for that understanding so that your first reflex in everything is to ask God to seek His understanding, to try to figure out what His Word says on every subject that you can so that you can at least understand yourself through the lens of His Word and you can understand the world around you and you can understand your friends and you can understand everything that you're doing through Him. So that's one factor of this childlikeness. There's another one, though, when he talks about becoming like a child, he has another idea in mind, which is the fact that children have no pretense as to their strength. They know that they're easily overpowered. They know that they're weak. They know that they're vulnerable. They know that they have need of someone to provide for them and to protect them. They don't, they don't sit around and imagine themselves going out and accomplishing everything that their parents might do or accomplishing everything that has to be done to take care of themselves. And in fact, they give very little thought to it because they just recognize that they're in a position to be provided for, not to be providing Again, translated to a spiritual sense, this is a full recognition that you need someone to protect you, you need someone to deliver you, you need someone to save you, you need someone to provide for you. 
which is, of course, the Lord. You say with Isaiah, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust. I'll not be afraid, for the Lord is my strength and my song, and He's become my salvation. This is very similar to what Jesus taught back in the Sermon on the Mount whenever He said that those who inherit the kingdom of God are who? The poor in spirit. This is the same truth. You enter into heaven by recognizing your spiritual poverty, your spiritual weakness, your spiritual bankruptcy. You come recognizing that you've got nothing to offer, nothing to offer to God, nothing really even to offer to yourself. You don't have anything that can save yourself. You have no virtue. You have no merit. You have no goodness. You have no wisdom. You have no knowledge. You have no counsel. You have nothing. You're absolutely destitute. You're spiritually bankrupt, nothing to commend yourself to God and nothing to commend yourself to others. Nothing that gives you any kind of advantage, nothing that gives you any kind of upper hand or foothold. And so because of all that, guess what? You lay aside any grasp of acclaim, any grasp of greatness, any grasp of glory. You divest yourself of any demand for dignity because you have no claim on it. This is the childlike meekness that Jesus has in mind here. It's that abandonment of all claim of, of greatness apart from the greatness of knowing God and belonging to Him. That's your claim now. And Jesus says no one enters the kingdom of heaven without that kind of transformation. You can have a religious facade, you can have religious activity, you can have religious friends, you can have all that other stuff, but if you don't go through that transformation right there, you're not entering the kingdom. J.C. Ryle again says, the surest mark of true conversion is humility. He says, if we have really received the Holy Ghost, we shall show it by a meek and childlike spirit like children. We shall think humbly of our own strength and wisdom and be very dependent on our Father in heaven. Turning and becoming like a child, Jesus says. That's the only way to enter. But that's not it, he says. That's not the end anyway. Because there's a second lesson in humility he wants them to understand. That greatness also rests on humility. It's not only the entrance into heaven. It's not only salvation that, that, that is, that is uh, marked out by that. But greatness is marked out by that. This is the way of greatness. Whoever, he says in verse 4, humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, now this becomes the definition of greatness for the believer. This is, by the way, why so many people fail at greatness because they don't even know what they're aiming for. They miss greatness because they don't even know what to shoot for. They can't achieve it because they're aiming at all the wrong things. They're aiming at all the sort of hubris and, and acclaim and bravado that's all around them. They want all the prestige. They want all the uh, sort of accolades. They, they think that if they can achieve all the influence that the world tells, it, tells you that they need, that you're going to have greatness. And so because they're aiming at the wrong thing, they never really ever find greatness. But Jesus is telling us this two kinds of greatness, I suppose you might say. The 
one that seeks the approval and the applause of men, the other that seeks the approval and the applause of God. Those who are driven by ambition to gain fame and influence and attention and and, and are constantly measuring themselves by how many people serve me or how many people do I have influence over or do I exercise authority over or how many people know who I am and have knowledge about me, how far has that traveled, how well am I known, how many, how many uh, followers I, 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 do I have. I mean, that's, that's a title for some people today. You understand that, right? They are what? An influencer. That's their self-identity. And it's not just them, but there are so many people around them whose dream is to be nothing except who those people are. There's that kind of greatness, greatness according to the world, and then there's greatness according to God. Those people who make it their ambition to do nothing else but to please God. Because they understand the measure of greatness is not achieved by what the world thinks of you, but it's achieved by what God accomplishes through you. The one pursuing childlikeness then, he has no desire to create his own greatness. Greatness, if anything, comes from the Lord. He's like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure, he says, in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from us. They understand that God can only fill an empty vessel, that He can't fill somebody who's full of themselves, who's full of their own pride, who's full of their own ideas and their own wisdom, who's full of all that stuff. The only one He can fill is the person who's emptied themselves. And so the Lord chooses to illustrate all of this through this little child, which in most cultures would be one of the last people you think of as great. Children are unskilled, they're weak, they're immature, they're vulnerable, they're dependent. They're generally not at all what you would picture as someone who's great. And yet these are the attitudes that Jesus says you have to have. The greatest among you is going to be the one who sees themselves like this little child. This is, of course, what the Scripture tells us throughout the, all of its pages, that God resists the proud. He resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. That, that word proud in, in James 4 where we read that, God resists, God opposes. The word proud is huperephnos, literally means it's a compound word for over, the word hooper and rafnos, which is to, be, to, to show something. And so it has the idea of somebody who wants to put themselves on display. They want to demonstrate, they want to show themselves as being better, as being over everyone else. They want to show themselves in all these exalted ways, in their thoughts, in their opinions, in their agenda, in their ends, in their achievements. And their whole life becomes defined by self. Self-recognition, self-exaltation, 
self-control. It's all about them. And it leads to all kinds of ripple effects in their life, that pride and that self-centeredness. They generally are people who are lacking in gratitude because in their minds they're always critical and complaining and discontent, thinking that they really deserve better than what they've received. You talk to them and they just, they just kind of pour forth with these complaints about what you didn't do or what someone didn't do for them because they really deserve better. Or they're angry because their rights or their expectations aren't being met or they have very little tolerance with people that would differ from them. Or they have inflated views of their own importance or their own abilities. They are, in their own minds, so, so far uh, ahead of where you are or where you were at their stage or whatever it might be. Or in some cases, they're perfectionists. That is to say, they're always striving for perfection in everything because they love the recognition that comes along with that. Or they're just otherwise consumed with other people and what they think of them. They're continually seeking the esteem and the approval of others. Many of their decisions are based on what other people think of them because they're so consumed with themselves. Or they might, in some ways, display it by just being devastated by criticism. They don't take criticism. They can't bear the thought of hearing about their own weaknesses. They can't bear the thought of hearing about their own imperfections. And so they're generally unteachable. These are people that don't want to hear from anyone else. They want independence. They want self-determination. They want self-control. They, want to, they find it extremely difficult to operate under authority. And they resist accountability. They don't, they don't want to hear from anybody uh, or they don't want to have to tell anyone about their weaknesses. They certainly they don't want to be sort of molded to anyone. They don't want to even admit that they need anyone. And when you do try to get into their life, it is full of blame shifting and defensiveness. You start to talk to them about these things and their response is, well, what about you? Or they're making excuses. Well, I, I was just tired or I just, you know, I had a bad day or this thing or that thing. Rather than just saying the truth, I'm a bad person. Constantly minimizing their sin, constantly thinking that it's not a big deal, constantly maximizing the the shortcomings of other people. They're rigid, they're stubborn, they're headstrong. God resists those people. That might be acceptable to the world around you. That might be on display all the time. It might be the thing that's celebrated in your heroes. That might be the the thing that others find, you know, in some way admirable. But not Christ. Christ. God resists those kinds of people. He resists them now. He will resist them in His kingdom. But on the other hand, the Scripture tells us He gives grace to the humble. God regards the lowly. He draws near to those who are humble and contrite in heart. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, are what you desire. This is what Jesus is telling them. This is the pathway of life. This is why he's already told them a couple of times, look, if you want to find life, you're out there seeking life, you're out there kind of finding a pathway, you want to find life, lose it. Lay it down. Quit trying to cling to and control and steer your life. Just just let go and completely lay your life down. That's the only way that you're going to find life, and that's the only way that you're going to find greatness. You can keep chasing everything around you. You can keep mimicking all the people around you. You can try to become the the um, you know the, the 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 macho or the influencer or whatever it might be. You can try to be one of those important people if you want, but you're never going to find life and you're never going to find greatness. There's only one pathway to greatness. And that pathway to greatness, it rubs against your belief system. It confronts all your expectations. But that pathway of greatness is you become like that little child. You renounce your knowledge, you renounce your strength, you renounce all those other things. You stretch out your hands and you take hold of God. You do all that and God is ready to work in and through you. Wherever He situates you, whatever pathway He's taking you on, He will now be ready. He will now be ready to pour His greatness into you on that pathway. And you'll be known, if not in this life, you'll be known for eternity because of the greatness that you've allowed God to work in your life. It's sad. Jesus would say these things to these guys and they wouldn't hear it. They'll go on from here and they'll continue to think just like the world even though in front of them every day was the example of Christ. They missed it. They missed opportunity. They missed missed reward. They missed all of that. They missed greatness because they were just so blind to it. That's my prayer today is that you wouldn't, that you wouldn't have to sort of learn the vanity of the world by chasing the world. My, my prayer for you is that you would hear this today. That greatness is patterned after the child and is demonstrated to us through Christ. Father, this is a message that we need. This is the message that the world rejects. But we want to be your children we want to have your greatness poured out into our hearts and minds we want to be used by you in great ways and we know that there is no greatness apart from that i pray then for those who are here today who are hearing this that they wouldn't harden their hearts they wouldn't resist they wouldn't be dull-minded like these disciples but may they finally humble their hearts yield their hearts to you may they finally learn the secret of greatness and allow you to work in their life first of all 
by welcoming, welcoming them into your kingdom. And then by having you work in and through them to bring about your glory as you do great things in them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.